0: Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 188. This one I think is appropriate for the time that we're in now because it's October. And I wanted to try to get something in here about, you know, the paranormal or something a little bit spooky. You know, I haven't, you know, really been traveling much during the pandemic, but I've been able to do some, some weekends and some things... You know, in the East Coast and in the Northeast, and so the guest today I had uh, I had messaged him where we were going up to to Niagara Falls a couple of months ago, and I was hoping maybe he would see the message at that time and I'd get to catch him, uh, but he saw it recently and we were able to do this one remotely. So my guest is Mason Winfield. Mason is an author, and he's incredibly knowledgeable about the paranormal. He's a researcher. He says he doesn't call himself an historian, but I think he has an incredible knowledge about the history of this stuff, about the history of folklore and specific paranormal events, particularly to the New York area. He's from upstate New York near Buffalo. If you're familiar, Buffalo is up near the Canadian border. And he's done talks. He does ghost tours, uh, like ghost walks. And I was really interested in him because he knows a lot about native traditions for indigenous peoples, people who are indigenous to what now today is New York. And, he, you know, he, he's real no bullshit. Um, he looks at this stuff with a skeptical mind and he's got a whole lot of history in his knowledge base uh, to provide context to a lot of this stuff. And I think that's really cool and and really exciting. We get into into exorcisms at the end, and that has always terrified me. I mean, to this day, The Exorcist is is a horrifying movie. A lot of those, I guess, older movies, to me, are so much more frightening than a lot of the stuff that comes out today, the real like gore-heavy slasher type of stuff. Stuff to me that could potentially be real is what really scares me, and possessions are just frightening. the The idea that you know something (laughs) is taking you over and you can't conquer it yourself without the help of someone with a special skill, or you know, I guess a priest comes armed with like the power of God. I don't know. You know, early in life, I think a lot of this stuff I would have looked at. Um, and sort of dismissed pretty easily but I love having these conversations and I love coming to them with an open mind to learn and I obviously love history and so hearing about some of the history and the historical roots of of folklore and supernatural phenomena is just really cool to me so really appreciative of, of, of Mason that he was able to come on and I think you're going to like this one Uh, You can go to the show notes for this episode, as always, and you will find a link to Mason's website. He's got a ton of books that he's written, uh, and I know that it's the pandemic right now, but I think he is starting to work back into doing some of these ghost walks. So if you're in the New York area, that's something cool for you to do right now. The show notes, you'll find that stuff. You will also find the link to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. You know what it is? Subscription based service. I got some cool new shirts in today, so that's a cool little kickback you could get for being a supporter. I've been getting a pretty good amount of downloads lately, so thanks to everybody. If you're brand new, thank you. I did a talk recently for a chamber of commerce in Maryland, so if any of you all are, are listening, thanks. It was cool talking to you. Uh, happy to have you in the Voyager family. All right everyone, enjoy this conversation with Mason Winfield.
1: Where are you from, Tim?
0: So'm I'm, I'm originally from Long Island, but uh, I'm calling you now from from Brooklyn, where I live. Okay. and you're you're native to New York.
1: Yeah, near Buffalo. Ah,
0: okay yeah, I'm going to get, I mean naturally, I guess we'll get into some New York specific stuff here. Um, but I think to to start this out, I'll explain that I had you know read uh, a lot of what you wrote and became interested uh, following your blog posts, which I thought were really fantastic. And is it is it fair for for listeners to to say that you are a researcher? well, amongst many things
1: that you do, but a,
0: a researcher and in, and a historian of paranormal and folklore? Is that fair?
1: Yeah, that's pretty good. I, I specialize in the upstate. Um, as long as you specify that I'm a historian of the supernatural slash paranormal, uh, I, I don't like taking false titles. I'm, I'm not really a historian. I'm a supernatural one, you know?
0: Okay, perfect. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm recording now, so, so folks heard that, so that will sort of explain that for, for people. There, there's a lot of avenues I can go here, uh, and I'm going to get into things that are specific to you in a little bit. But as a novice to this type of world, I would think that, um, you know, folklore and even fairy tales and, and stories of the supernatural I would think that they they have some type of a social utility, and I'm really thinking of like pre-industrial societies, uh, or even you know rural societies where, uh, you know, the the monster in the woods, quite literally, is you know a, a carnivorous animal that could be in the woods that could eat you. <laughs> and uh, I'm wondering from from your research if you've if you've come across the use of these stories. To, to serve as a social good, maybe, you know, especially for, for young people and kids?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, there's been a ton of ink spilled over the purpose of uh, storytelling, particularly the, the fantastic folkloric tales. Um, I'm not a true folklorist either. I'm going to admit that. Uh, I'm a real generalist, and I won't take the title of a folklorist in a way, Contrasting myself to a, a surveillance ghost hunter, I may call myself a folklorist because it is sort of the work I do. But, um, you know, I've, I've read many uh, people who comment on the use of, uh, of stories and even the supernatural ones. I mean, they're, they're taken to be moral lessons or they're, they're kind of like venting for the interior self. They're, there's something satisfying about them, but they don't last as stories. And that could be uh, part of the reason they keep perpetuating. But since you touched upon the subject of folklore, I'd like to comment something. When I started um, studying the living and recent, you know, like 100 years old, you know, traditions of, the, of upstate New York, I really never thought I would ever meet a human being hmm. who said they had seen a fairy or some of the other figments of uh, supernatural folklore. I thought the line between traditional folklore and contemporary paranormal experience was a mile wide. And one of the big shocks I've had, and I've had a number of them, but one of the big shocks I had starting this work is the observation that there that ancient folklore does... Penetrate into apparent, I mean, perceived contemporary experience. There are people who think they see shapeshifters. There are people who say they see fairies, little people, or, or things that would directly answer to these folkloric um, beings. And uh, I'm, I'm not saying I've seen any, <laughs> right? But um, you know, you, you you these old patterns. They, they still last to a surprising degree.
0: So when you approach a topic, when you're going to research something, do you ap- approach it with a degree of skepticism or do you try to come with a completely open mind?
1: Uh, yes, <laughs> both of them. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, skepticism is an open mind. Mm. And materialism is being positive that the world is nothing but physical. Spiritualism is believing without a lot of question in the active intervention of uh, non-physical entities in the daily activities of the world. Hmm. A skeptic is in between. A skeptic is the person who has the open mind.
0: Ah, that's interesting.
1: Sure, that's what a skeptic does. They don't make a judgment before they try to look at all the information. Wow. That doesn't mean that everyone who calls themselves any one particular thing truly is. It just means that's what the term means, you know.
0: You know, I, I've seen you you write about the shadow. And I know you're not a, um, a psychologist or like, I guess, a parapsychologist. Uh, clearly, neither am I. I. I read a book recently called Owning Your Shadow. And I think it touches on what you were talking about in, in your post, in one of your blog posts, Um, but I do see sort of the connection to some of the storytelling and the idea of the shadow. And I was wondering if, you know, for listeners, if you could explain what that is.
1: Well, I hope I can. Um, That book you cited sounds pretty interesting. I may have to look it up. I think it's possible that whatever you read in one of my pieces, I may have been talking about the Jungian. Yes. uh, And Carl Jung, Carl Gustav Jung, the great psychoanalyst, his shadow. And um, Jung is a great hero of mine. I certainly don't claim to be uh, a specialist in his very heavy poetic theories. But uh, the shadow self, as I understand it, is a a component of the human personality that scares us. We've all got a shadow side. And I would say that in the realm of – and the shadow side scares us because it sort of implies the unknown it sort of implies something about ourselves that might be something we don't want to acknowledge um i mean the prisons and the mental institutions are full of people who don't control their shadow you know they're people who respond to their dark petty selfish impulses and they they hurt other people and you know, they need to get separated until they cool off. But the shadow, um, I think, in, in art and in, in literature, it, it would represent itself as something that's human-like, but not quite. Something that's visually distinct from us, but yet close enough. I think the purpose of another terrifying monster, like a Godzilla you know, or a King Kong, the message of that beastie, as terrifying as it is, it it's It's not to impersonate the alter self, the evil alter self of a human personality. but uh, you know i I was not referring by use of the shadow to the shadow people and you know that apparition form. If you want to talk about that, we certainly can,
0: yeah, and um I do have that here in my notes. You know, the reason I bring it up is I'm sort of I'm, I'm pointing at the different. Uses of of storytelling, and I think that that author who, who wrote the book I mentioned, he would say that our uh, our, our interest in like proclivity to, or, to to watching horror films, right? And and horror films are massively popular. Like you could repeat the same trope over and over, and people will still go watch it.
1: No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and he would argue that that is us, in a way, satisfying that shadow because it's sort of the the idea that we have suppressed something within us that could do horrible things and a way to kind of uh, satisfy that for a little while oh, yeah. is to watch a, a, a gruesome film.
1: Oh, well, sure, yeah. That that helps us expiate it. You know, we work it out through entertainment and uh, we don't need to do it in reality. Yeah. I, I will confess that I have no desires to... Do anything nasty in reality. You know there are people who think I'm not really a horror writer, but I have written some horror, and I know people sometimes think that horror writers are people who really kind of fantasize about doing that stuff. And I know lots of horror writers, and they are some of the gentlest people I know. I mean, within I mean they can be pretty macho if you push them, but yet. It's actually the reason I think a lot of them write horror, is because they're sensitive souls, mm. and horror is so horrible to them <laughs> that they they work it out by writing about it, you know.
0: Yeah, that's 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 really interesting, and you know, I'll I'll sort of put a pin in it by saying, like, I understand the point about the Godzilla too, because there's also in storytelling like the monster that's the metaphor for society and, and industrialization and addiction and disease and things like that. Uh, but I'm really, I guess, sticking more to what you talk a lot about and that's sort of like the the apparition and uh, I guess, you know, very simply ghosts. And and that's sort of the the third bucket I'll put the storytelling in is the literal and, and the lived experiences of people who truly believe that they have seen a ghost. I'm, I'm obviously aware of the fact that some people who are listening are coming to this with great skepticism, and you know there are people who, who aren't going to believe that, and maybe some will still listen and enjoy this episode for you know either education or entertainment. But I, I'm going to explore this this bucket more now. But I just want to kind of qualify it and say, when we're talking about stories like that, do you believe that there is truth and reality to somebody experiencing like a a paranormal situation where they see a ghost?
1: Some of the time. Yeah. You know, I mean, some of the time people are very imaginative and they, you know, I run into people all the time that tell me spooky stories and I don't believe them. Okay. But on the other hand... You know, the a lot of good parapsychologists believe that uh, we've all had psychic experience. And it's, you know, psychic experience, is not always dramatic. You know, it's not like the werewolf jumping out of your closet. You know, it's not uh, Godzilla stomping on your house. It's a sound effect. It's an apparition. It's something that shouldn't happen, but it'll be very subtle and it'll be very quick. And a lot of us, including me, believe some materialists, you know, people who, who don't believe in anything, have had supernatural experience. And they refuse to acknowledge it.
0: Yeah, It's interesting, too, because I think, you know, many religious traditions of which, you know, a vast majority of the people in this country and around the world fall into the major religions uh, those, are, those stories are, are riddled with stories of, of paranormal <laughs> experiences.
1: Oh, you're absolutely right. It's very perceptive of you. I mean, religions, all religions are basically in the supernatural business. The trick is that uh, you get some mainstream religions that have been um, sanctified by the society. Yeah. You know, that's the in-crowd in supernaturalism. And then you've got the outcrowd supernaturalism, which is your private practitioner of a, you know, in the old days, the, the out-crowd superstition or supernaturalism was people who um, took the supernaturalism of an outcast group. Like, you know, let's say it's the year 1200 AD and um, Christianity moves into Europe and Christianity is... You know the old christianity was a little bit of a no prisoners faith i mean you're either with us or against us they're not the only people in history who've ever done that but um they move in and and meanwhile the the hills and the forests and the mountain ranges are populated with people who kind of enjoyed the religion that existed before the the, the paganism the pantheism and all faiths change over time so in other words the surviving pockets of this old religion isn't going to be identical with what it had been centuries before but yet you know this is at least one theory for some of the things that were persecuted as witchcraft it's a rival supernaturalism to that of the mainstream yeah and it's not the only not the only theory about witchcraft but it's one of them
0: so then where at, at what point in your life did this become of interest to you? Did you have any experiences, you know, early on in life?
1: Well, I think I did as a kid, but it, it wasn't what drove me into the study. Um, I, I was always interested in the spooky stuff when I was a kid, just loved it. You know, monsters, oh, a little kid used to draw dinosaurs, anything, you know, that was a little grander than and and also more scarier, you know, as in my kid self would have said, than than ordinary life. I, I love that sort of stuff. But I'm not the only person that likes the spooky stuff. Uh, turning it into a profession um, was basically a professional idea. You know, I was an English teacher, had a, a good master's degree, and you know, a, a good master's in lit anyway means you can read and write the hell out of anything you know you can make yourself a, if you have a you know good degree and you look up to it you ought to be able to study anything pretty quickly and uh i i you know i was an english teacher for a while and i thought that education might be moving in a different direction from where i wanted to go in my life and uh when i left education i realized i probably needed a freelance career that had many levels to it you know And uh, I noticed that the supernatural business was very popular with the general public. And I also noticed there don't tend to be a lot of real good scholars in it. And I thought I could have a nice freelance career writing books and tours and giving talks. And, uh, you know, I decided to be very professional about it, specializing in getting grounded in the research. Which which incidentally wasn't that tough for me because I'd always had an interest in it, you know. Uh, I just needed to do some catch-up. And, uh, you know, it's been a good decision.
0: You know, it's funny because I can't say that I've had any supernatural experiences that I know of. Um, But I remember the first time I ever had my eyes open to the possibility. And I I was a Boy Scout as a young person, as a lot of young people are. And it wasn't a merit badge, but you could get some kind of like medal or pin or something by attending uh, some type of like religious studies class and workshops or whatever. And so there was a kid's mother who had us over their house for five consecutive weeks or something. And, you know, you would attend the lessons and then you would get the pin or whatever it was. I think it was like a little like dangly medal. And she told us a story that her sister, so it would have been like her her nephew, was out playing in the yard and, and the kid was like rolling a ball into a shed and he was out there by himself and she looks out the window and she sees the ball getting thrown back to him, right? Uh-huh. So, you know, maybe true, maybe not. But it was the first time in my life that somebody I looked at as like a holder of knowledge, this is a teacher for this class who knows way more than me as a kid, And it's telling me something that sort of shatters my worldview because, you know, I grew up sort of sneaking in while my dad was watching The X Files and getting, you know, the ish scared out of me watching that, but also being taught like a very scientific approach to the world. And this is something, and we'll actually kind of get into this later, but at least to me at the time, like couldn't be scientifically proven and sounded like something that would come from like a quack. But this was a very like sober minded, intelligent person telling me. And that sorta of shook things up for me a little bit hearing that.
1: You know, um my dad sounds like the same way. He was a very down to earth guy. Maybe a little too down to earth, you know, just a little too left brain. Um, because when you're too much one or the other, it kind of shuts off some possibilities. But um, he believed that the universe was largely material, and yet he had a couple of experiences that he didn't understand. He didn't, you know, dowsing. You know what that is, dowsing. No, I don't. Water using implements. No. He brought a, Oh, well, the way we think the old timers used to find water was by looking for it by means of a kind of a psychic ability called dowsing it means using implements to locate things that you can't see and whereas uh, most of throughout most of history dowsing has been looking for water or underground materials in recent years in recent century dowsing has been taken to be a lot more than that. But let's just say that when I was a kid living in East Aurora, New York, um, I was probably seven, uh, my dad wanted to put a well in the backyard and he wanted to find out if there was any water. And My dad had grown up on a farm in Ohio. He wasn't a farmer. Neither were his grandparents. They owned a farm, but they weren't farmers. But nonetheless, he had a lot of the old folk wisdom with him. And he found a local dowser, some guy living in the hills outside East Aurora. Old farmer, guy came, with, came in with a couple of sticks, fork stick, you know. And he walked back and forth across the uh, backyard, a couple of different directions. And finally, he pointed down and made a mark of something and said, There's your well right there. And uh, my dad drilled there, and uh, lo and behold, we had a wonderful well. I remember asking him, uh, How does that work? And he goes, I don't know, but it does. Yeah. And that wasn't the only instance. I mean, some of these, uh, I remember he, he bought a wart when I was about maybe five, maybe smaller than that. I had a wart on my hand. I still remember it. I didn't know what it was. And, uh, you know, I showed my father and he goes, I said, what, what the I that?" And he goes, Oh, that's a wart. Uh, you want to get rid of it? I go, well, kind of. <laughs> and he goes, well, I'll buy it from you. And I go, Oh really? He goes, Oh yeah, yeah. Gave me a penny and I'm holding a penny. You know, that was, you know, in a day when the penny meant a little more than it would now. And I'm looking at it and go, this doesn't sound like a very good deal for you, Dad. Are you going to get it? He goes, no, it'll just go away. I go, oh, yeah, how's that work? And he goes, well, just keep an eye out. And the next time I thought about it, I looked at my hand. The wart's gone. I went went back to my dad and goes, Dad, remember that wart? He goes, oh, yeah. I go, It's it's, it's gone. And, and he goes, well, yeah, that's what I told you. I said, uh, how does that work? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know, but it does. And um, those are, I think, the only ones I can remember with my dad that were that definite and that direct. But, I mean, you do find people who will go, "Ah, yeah, the universe is entirely material. I mean, maybe there's a heaven, maybe there's a god, but yet, you know, you don't have magic, you don't have ghosts, you don't have that stuff. But then they'll believe in something that would seem to imply that their materialistic theory is uh, not...
0: Not a hundred percent. Wow. You know, I'm I'm down here in the city, and I think for a lot of people in the city in Long Island, they think like upstate New York, and, and well, well, what's up there, you know? Uh, but New York has such a vast history. Um, you know, the history of this country, the like French and Indian War, Revolutionary War, War of 1812, and with those wars comes a lot of death, and so. I'll pin that oh, yeah. for I'll pin that for a second because I'm interested in this. But obviously, the, there are native peoples that far predate the arrival uh, and really imperialism of of Europeans. Um, I know you've done done some work with this. I'm wondering if there are maybe uh, any common themes or experiences that come out of uh, you know Native American folklore and, and, and their view of the paranormal.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a real good question. Well, ghost stories are told in just about every human society. There's really been something going on there for a mighty long time. I mean, there are uh, rainforest cultures in the Amazon that have never been contacted with the outside world. They tell ghost stories. Um, cave paintings in France and Spain seem to indicate. Um, an awareness of a of a detachable soul that might leave the body after death and even be be visible. So this is something that isn't going away. Um, and they, at least among the Upstate Iroquois, speak Iroquoians, you know, they like to call themselves Haudenosaunee, Longhouse people, these days. Um, and I try to be, you know, respectful wherever I can. They have a, a they have a real strong belief in the supernatural. They tend to, and I, I find this beautiful and poetic. Uh, you, you don't find many diehard materialists among them. They're in better touch with the uh, spirituality and the supernaturalism of their ancestors. Um, honestly, though, the, uh, the, the Iroquoians don't tend to tell a ton of ghost stories. They have a lot of, you know, it's not a major element of their folklore. They do have a lot of experiences, though, They're very spiritual, intuitive people, in my experience. And um, in the stories and reports you see about ghosts, they're really different from European ghost stories. Because with a lot of European ghost stories, their, their presumption is, and it looks like them, and it's back with a message and a mission. And... Very few of the ghosts that eyewitnesses report really behave like that. Most of the ghosts that eyewitnesses of any world society report don't look very intelligent. They look like walking movies, you know, Hmm. and the Iroquoian people that pretty much describes the ghosts they report as well as the ghosts in their stories. It's almost like they believe, and I think they do, that the human soul may have a couple components that we're not just body and spirit we might have a couple different kinds of spirit and one kind of the human spirit is a little more material than the others a little more earthbound and that this is what will be the ghost because the part of us that gives us our identity that's off with the great spirit once we die or at least if we deserve to be there so that's not the the part that we're going to be seeing back on earth that's my experience and it's totally consistent with the insights of parapsychology, incidentally.
0: Are there um, are there sites in, in New York that are considered to be active that date back to you know sites that were important to to the Longhouse people?
1: Like you wouldn't believe. Really, it's really one of the main focuses of my study is trying to incorporate the really ancient world with contemporary experience. Um, there are prehistoric battlefields. There are religious monuments that are thousands of years old, and uh, they tend to pick up supernatural folklore, and not exclusively people who know what they are. As a matter of fact, that's one of the most interesting things. Like, a lot of white people living in New York State don't have any idea what they're on top of.
0: When when people are experiencing something at these sites, you know the I guess the trope again would be that there's this sort of white ghostly apparition. Uh, what exactly are they experiencing when they say they have a paranormal experience?
1: Well, they're they're not using their terms right. <laughs> the word paranormal means it doesn't mean ghostly. Um, it started to be taken to be that about the last 10 years because the TV programs have been using paranormal to mean ghostly. But, you know, most of its uh, 20th century and 21st century use, most of the 20th century use, paranormal meant something outside the normal picture, you know, outside the picture of what's scientifically accepted so that the paranormal includes Bigfoot's, <laughs> Bigfoot, uh, <laughs> you know, Bigfoot, you know, cryptids, mystery monsters. It includes um, uh, earthly energies. It includes uh, UFOs. It, uh, you know, the word paranormal means a lot of things. It's a big category. Psychic phenomena. That is, you know, the aspect of the paranormal that's concerned with uh, human beings, particularly. You know, unknown phenomena produced presumably by the human organism, mind, spirit, whatever. So, when when people are going on a, a ghost hunt, they they're probably if they experience anything at all, they're experiencing psychic phenomena. I mean, some of the time they probably do, but I mean, truly experience something. But um, psychic means um, originating with the human mind or spirit. And uh, so psychic phenomena, ghostly stuff, that's not the only thing that's considered psychic phenomena. Um, there there are a number of components to it, like extra-sensory perception, you know, there's information talents, there's uh, apparitions, there are um, psychokinesis, which is physical, you know, using your mind to uh, make something happen in the, in the world that's mind a matter, you know, that's psychokinesis. Um, so I hope that wasn't too technical of an answer. It would really be better if a lot of the people who do Ghost hunts called themselves psychic investigators.
0: And I guess, you know, popular shows, like I think there's one actually called Ghost Hunters, and they go in with infrared and they try to find something and never actually find anything. I guess that's that's a bunch of baloney.
1: Well, I, you know, um, I think you know, we should use technology all we can to try to get as much information as we can. Uh, I certainly don't criticize them trying to do that. The baloney part would be, in my opinion, implying to the general public that you can call up spooks whenever you want. All you got to do is go into a dark building at night and you know, you're going to get ghosts. Um, that, that isn't right. <laughs> and, um, Science would believe in, in psychic phenomena if it were that easy. Um, now, there's some pretty good reasons that a lot of scientifically-minded people don't believe in psychic phenomena. But um, probably one of the best reasons they don't is because of the failure of uh, a lot of these public attempts. Um, I, if you did happen to be interested in it, I could conjecture quite a lot about that. There's been a lot of ink spilled about why psychic phenomena should be so hard to uh, validate. And uh, I'll cut it short by saying one of the reasons it's so hard to validate it is because people have false expectations of it. Ah. You know Their expectations are based on folklore and literature and movies. But the other reason psychic phenomena can be so hard to validate is because there's a very devoted crew of people who refuse to acknowledge it. They will just argue away every... I mean, really, I compare... Um, a study of psychic phenomena, and indeed the paranormal in general, to American politics. You know, you got your diehard right of center, your diehard left of center, they're never going to meet. Fortunately for Americans, most Americans, there's a very big middle ground. You know, the, the radicals at either end don't run the show. It's, it's the middle, the American middle, that usually decides elections. The trick with the paranormal is that they're, the middle ground is very small. You've got large groups of people that believe nothing. You've got large groups of people that believe everything. And the the middle ground in the paranormal is quite narrow. And I I feel like I occupy the middle ground.
0: Are you familiar with the researcher and writer uh, Graham Hancock?
1: Well, sure, yeah. Uh, He's a very prominent, uh, I, I guess you'd call him an earth mysteries expert in a way, he's sort of following the footsteps and expanding greatly on um, guys that preceded him that may have been just a generation older, like um, John Michelle and um, yeah. uh, Paul Devereaux and, uh, you know, the, the, some wonderful researchers. Um, yes, I, I am I'm roughly familiar with Graham Hancock's book. I've seen a lot of his stuff on TV quite a bit.
0: The reason I bring him up is you just made me think of him because – you know, I'll, I'll be concise for listeners, but essentially, he's pointing out potential evidence of sophisticated societies that existed before we believe complex societies existed in our idea of the historical record. And yeah. if he's correct, it makes a lot of people's research potentially incorrect. And so, there's some politics involved in, yeah. oh. in oh, you're so right.: Yeah, yeah. in, in, in making him incorrect: Yeah, and, and the reason I'm thinking of that is sort of what you just said, would is there a push against this idea, because it would make some people's idea of science, I guess, incorrect?
1: Well, I think the best push against Hancock, coincidentally incidentally, I respect very much. I think the push against him is, is just that the concept of a global, a global uh, communication system involving ancient monuments, I, it's just a little little far-fetched for me. Um, but the idea, you know, if you walk him back just about one, one step, I, I can be I'm right there with him. I think um, you know, I think there is evidence already, that's accepted. Um, There's a a monument in, I think it's Turkey, it's called Gobekli Tepe, Mm -hmm. very much older. It's a real big megalithic monument. Now, it it doesn't prove UFO technology, but it certainly does prove, it suggests very strongly, if all the dating is correct, that humanity had very developed agrarian societies, maybe even cities, Um, long before they were expected to. I mean, Gobekli Tepe, uh, I think, first of all, it's not been completely and thoroughly researched yet. It's going to take years, and and the discovery of its true impact is fairly recent. But, um, uh, yeah, I think uh, it's quite likely that uh, there were something answering to civilization long before... You know the rise of, uh, of Egypt and the Fertile Crescent, and uh, I, I think in other parts of the world too. I think in the Americas they're going to find that uh, certain things are, are much older than they thought. You know, so yeah, I'm I'm right there with that. I think it's very interesting. It, it's just that I'm I'm pretty cautious as a uh, researcher. You know, I'm pretty cautious about advancing a theory. I I, I don't uh, espouse something. Unless I can really back it up, and uh, so you're not going to catch me, <laughs> you know, getting too too wild about yeah. my theories, you know.
0: I'm going to go back to to native peoples of the Americas for a second. Um, something maybe uh, is part of like our, you know, uh, collective conscience is is knowing about skinwalkers, and when I. I was in Tucson for a little bit about ten years ago when I first heard people mention skinwalkers. Essentially, a shape-shifting creature. Sometimes people say you know uh, starts out as a coyote and often will go running alongside a vehicle. And there's there's other shape-shifting type of creatures in in other folklore. But the thing that interests me about it is not like, well, is this real? But what interests me is the fear you hear when people are talking about it. And the people I talk to about it are, you know, like white Americans, right? And I'm wondering if in, in the native tradition, if the same type of fear uh, is felt when, when approaching a topic like a skinwalker or something paranormal or if, it, if it's normalized more.
1: Well, um, let me respond like this, um, among the upstate, the Native American people of the upstate, there are a few things they don't really like to talk about with outsiders. Um, it's not necessarily a fear thing so much as it's a respect thing. And as far as, you know, in other words, um, if I have a subject that I think is very holy to certain people and, um, that they could be offended by you know people not really exposed to their tradition talking about it irreverently and and that's information that I may have but they don't want it to get out i'm not going to let it out i'm going to try to protect that tradition but um that said the the skinwalker you know it's so funny a, a lot of native american groups have got a figure like the skinwalker and they don't call it a skinwalker but They've got something very much like it. It's a The Skinwalker is basically it's a, a figure you can find among the Iroquois, the Iroquois into upstate New York. It's it's a, it's a shape shifting witch, you know. And um, to say that it's identical with the Iroquoian version probably wouldn't be fair to either tradition, but yet this is something. The, the Skinwalker is the name that everybody's familiar with, possibly due to the wonderful writing of the American Loss of Tony Hillerman who, uh, he, he's just vivid, just a gripping writer. And, um, he's done a wonderful job making the traditions of, I think the Navajo, pretty sure that's a Navajo, making their traditions live. And because he was so successful and so good as a writer, so evocative, um, Skinwalker has gotten to be a little more famous than, you know, I mean, a lot of native groups have one. The Iroquois. They they don't call it a skinwalker. They might call it a shapeshifter, but it's not necessarily this protean being who can snap its fingers and become all different kinds of shapes. It's generally an evolution of of one of the duties of the old shaman, you know, because uh, the old shamans had a great communication with the animal world. And the greatest of shamans were thought to be able to take on an animal form. And, um, so I, I think you're you're kind of there's a bit of overlap between the you know the original shamanism and it's evolved quite a bit into uh, into a kind of a morph with witchcraft because frankly you know the a great elder a great medicine person would be able to take the form of the totem animal but then a an evil witch would be able to do that too so and there is a lot of apprehension among the Iroquois about witches. There's apprehension about that still. A great many of them still believe in the capacity of some people to use, you know, malefic magic to be able to work their will.
0: It's interesting talking about fear because probably most people would say, well, okay, like no one's ever, like, no one could ever account for the fact that somebody was killed by a ghost, right? I'm wondering in your research if you've come across anything that's you know documented historically where there's been harm done to a person that either was was so unexplained that the explanation was something paranormal.
1: Well, I don't think there's a good case on record of anyone being killed or hurt by a ghost. There are some pretty good cases of people within a cultural group like uh, b- people who were raised to believe in voodoo and yeah, for instance, and they believe they're getting cursed and um, they believe that curses can work and they, they suffer, they suffer suffer damage. Is it because it's uh, psychosomatic because they believed it or because the curse truly does work or because the curse only truly does work on people who believe in it. I mean, um, I don't know. Plus, you know there have been disappearances in the woods, and uh, you know places where there are bigfoot reports and uh crazy critter reports and um you know it's uh i, I wouldn't say it's it, it, there's been perfect documentation, but there's certainly a possibility that
0: mm. uh,
1: there's something out there that we we don't don't really have in a zoo yet that uh, might knock off people once in a while. I, I certainly cannot point to any great cases. You know, there is a, uh, an incident called uh, the incident at Dyatlov Pass in Russia. I don't remember the exact year. I think it might have been 1955, but it's really easy to find, really easy to look up. A, you know, you just go D-Y-A-T-L-O-V, Dyatlov. And it's a prominent incident in which, um, I think it might have been nine young Russian people Both sexes, athletes, very good shape, very good skiers. And they went on a tour, camping tour in a remote region during the winter. And uh, they were all killed. And uh, their behavior, you know, when their bodies were found was, uh, you know, their last moments were terrified and chaotic. And it looked like they were just trying to run away from something. And a couple of the people killed had uh, traumatic, you know, like injuries, broken limbs, and um, also at least one of them had been writing in his journal about the appearance of, um, I forget what they called them. I I think they called them maybe snow people or something like that. But uh, apparently there were rumors of uh, Bigfoot-like critters in the region they went to. Nobody really believed it. And, uh, these people, at least one of them started writing in his journal that they had been seeing them, that they were worried that they felt like they may have even been stalked by them. And then you, you know, you find the bodies and, uh, you know, <laughs> so I'm not saying that, that this particular incident doesn't have other theories. It certainly does, but, uh, that's a case. There was a case in upstate New York, um, that was never, it never presented itself as anything paranormal. But I mean, there was a young Native American guy who was a real responsible kid. All of a sudden, one night, he pulls a freak out and starts driving across the state, super high speed, when I think Route 5, which is on top of an ancient Native trail, ended up killing himself in a crash. And uh, I mean, it almost could look like he was fleeing something that he's, that he saw um, there was a case of a guy found in a parking lot i think outside a hospital in upstate new york and uh his, his face had been so completely lacerated by something the uh he drowned in his own blood. And the, oh. the authorities couldn't figure out what kind of animal could have possibly done it to him. They were thinking it had to be an animal that escaped from the zoo. It wasn't any animal that was native to the region. Now, if ever there's a good candidate for somebody getting torched by a uh, shapeshifter, that's a good case, you know? So it's really hard to tell. We may get reports, and we we don't know how to process them.
0: That's Insane. I, I pulled up the Diatlov Pass. I was reading along while you were speaking. That's fascinating.
1: It's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's scary.
0: I mentioned before the great history uh, of, of fighting and battles in New York State. And I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, active sites or, or even places where you take people if, if you're taking them on, on, a, on a ghost hunt, right, or a ghost tour, is there an, an idea or a, I don't know if consensus is the right word, but for an area to to be particularly active, is it usually that some great trauma had happened there?
1: Oh, I wouldn't say usually. Okay. I, I almost say it the other way around. Places of trauma tend to pick up ghost stories. But, but they're not the only ones by any means. Religious sites, holy sites, churches, you know, um, cathedrals, ancient monuments, um, religious monuments of, of other societies, they, they tend to pick up supernatural folklore, too. So, no, I, I would say trauma usually does pick up ghost stories, but there's a lot of ghost stories that don't involve trauma.
0: That's interesting. Um, In my experience. You know, I, I've heard, and this this maybe isn't the case, but I've heard that at some of those sites where there were battles, that you know, one of the experiences that people will have is, um, is something that that's kind of audible, something that they pick up, and it, and it sounds like ammunition going off, or you know, you know like the the, yeah. cri- the cries oh, yeah. of war. Is that something the you phantom,
1: the phantom battle?
0: Ah. Have you experienced
1: that? See recreations of battles, they'll so see. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely something they say they see. Um, a lot of the time, though, they know they're on a battlefield. Like when they were at Gettysburg, I, you know, I, I can't criticize their experiences. I wasn't there. I might have seen and heard the same thing if I was. But, you know, we're suggestible creatures, Don't forget that part. A lot of us really, really, really want to see something supernatural. And especially in recent uh, decades with um, TV and the paranormal becoming so, so prominent, there's a lot of um, thrill seekers, you know, basically people who want to go on a legend quest or a a vision trip or whatever they call it. They really want a supernatural adventure. And uh, I, again, I'll go back to this. I can't criticize their experiences. If I'm not there I can't tell you what they, what they saw or didn't see. What I will say is this. The ghost stories, the supernatural experiences that mean the most to me, that I find the most interesting, are those of the most credible witnesses, people who are not likely to tell stories, people who are minding their own business, people who don't happen to know where they are at the time. Because let's face it, a lot of battlefields, particularly the ancient ones, nobody knows it's there. you got to go... Got to go to the old county histories and you know dig dig it up. There's no monument there, and and when people don't know where they are and they're reporting experiences that are quite consistent with uh, other battlefields and they don't know they're on one, for instance, that uh, that that's where it starts to interest me quite a bit.
0: And there are there are times when there are such things as like anthropologic, uh, anthropological evidence, right. That comes up. I, I, think I had read that, uh, there were some like preserved footprints that people were saying, like could be evidence of something like a skinwalker because of the gate being really large. I would imagine that things like that are quite valuable for, you know, for researchers.
1: Well, yeah, if you, if you ever get it, <laughs> they're not that common. Uh. Um, I I would tell you this. It, it sounds a little bit. Yeah, there have been footprints uh, of very large and and differently walking hominids, you know, ape-like beings. Um, there there certainly are people who have claimed to have that sort of evidence. It's um it's really rare and it's pretty easy to be faked. Um, but I think when you're talking about if you're referring to the skinwalker, I have been told that it's a dirty little secret among the anthropologists who spend a lot of time out West, that they see a lot of creepy stuff. It's, I mean, I, I don't think it's a dirty little secret, but it's something a lot of them really don't want everybody to know that they experience some of the things they do. And I've, I've even heard, there's a story, I, I don't remember whether I read this or whether it was told it by one of my friends. I have a couple of pretty good friends that are, you know, anthropologists and archaeologists and, uh, you know, I keep my, keep my feelings out. And uh, I guess there was a case on a reservation, one of the reservations out west, wide open spaces, and some important message was carried between villages overnight. And these these villages were really far apart, like dozens of miles, and nobody had a car, and yet, a guy just started running and there's no way the guy ran like 60 miles across the desert in five hours, you know, and yet the message was transferred. And just out of curiosity, the, uh, the anthropologist decided to follow the steps of the guy who had started running. And it turns out that his gait, his stride, elongated dramatically. It was like he was covering 50 feet, you know, 80 feet with each stride after a while. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just stories like that, that are doing the rounds. And, uh, you know, I, I can't prove to you that that story, um, is valid, but yet it's a story like that, that, uh, you know, people who have no reason to be making something up will will tell as a, as a curiosity. Yeah.
0: I mean, that, I find it fascinating. Um, I'm wondering if... You know, you, you've had so much access to, to this type of history and these stories. Uh, is there ever anything that, that keeps you up at night that uh, uh, makes you fearful?
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the current political cycle <laughs> we're going through keeps me up at night.
0: Yeah, that's a I good mean, point.
1: I've, I'm worried for the first time about um, free speech in our nation. I was never really worried about it before. I'm really worried about it now. That keeps me up at night. Um, well, I'll be honest with you. Um, there was a time I had the faint suspicion that I could have been getting, getting some, I was getting the signs of a curse and, um, it, you know, I I didn't think it was going to kill me or anything, but, you know, I was just getting a, a bunch of karma going suspiciously wrong all at the same time, which would sound exactly like the effect if you had an enemy who had cursed you in, in either the voodoo tradition or it just it was exactly what the stories would say. Oh, yeah, you're getting cursed. And fortunately um, for me, uh, I don't really 100 percent believe in curses. For another, I have some really good friends who are very powerful people. Um, a couple of Native American elders. One was Tasmanola. Uh, Another one was a Seneca. They had a uh, a priest. He was actually a um, a Franciscan. Uh, real, high, I think maybe you would have called him a friar. Very powerful man. He would he would have been the exorcist for Western Europe. But he really had a lot of exposure to many world traditions. And uh, you know, I had a real good friend who was a very potent astrologer, and another friend who was kind of a voodoo priestess, and I. I talked to them all and I said, what do you think? And, you know, they, they, they said they, they didn't think I was getting cursed, you know, but it, it looked that way for a little while. I do know, I have an Algonquin friend who's a young elder. He said, I don't like I'll get working it and I'll cook up some medicine. Uh, there are people who specialize in turning this stuff around too. So yeah, I, I won't exactly say that kept me up at night, but uh, it would be kind of scary if you got the feeling that somebody had figured out a way to, put the jazz on the news so that almost every decision you made would be wrong for a period of time.
0: That's always terrified me the most of like any sort of um paranormal story like the exorcism that something that you can't you can't fix without someone else intervening is terrifying to yeah. me.
1: <laughs> well, we've changed the subject because an exorcism uh, a case of demonic possession is dramatically different from any type of uh, spell that a human being might cast on another. Um, I happen to uh, know a bit about at least what the church thinks that the the Catholic Church thinks about their exorcism and possession because of my old buddy, uh, father of Francis Trubold. He was the he would have been the exorcist for the diocese in Western New York, except for the fact. That he had never done an exorcism, he just had never met anyone that he considered to be directly, completely possessed by something from outside, you know, the the normal, the normal plane of the earth. It didn't mean he didn't believe in the subject. It simply meant that he had never seen a case of it. But he did talk to me quite a bit about the church's general thinking on on the subject of demonic possession. And I would tell you, it is damn scary. It is dangerous for everybody. Even if the person probably isn't possessed, it's scary as hell for everybody. And it's dangerous to get involved. in. If, if anyone ever comes up to you and says, well, you son are possessed, or if they say it to any of your friends or something, go in the other way. Because first of all, <clears throat> nobody except someone in my opinion, now this is just my opinion, nobody who is not trained in the centuries of tradition of one of the major faiths like Christianity or Judaism or Islam. I mean, every major faith has some technique of dealing with this possibility. Um, but really, it, it, the idea that a person like me or you can take a weekend course and then perform an exorcism and diagnose the need of an exorcism and then do it is, is really ludicrous and dangerous. And, and um, it's like the ghost hunting thing. Uh, starting about the year 2000, Um, the ghost, the couple of the ghost hunters decided to up the ante and pronounce themselves demonologists, you know, like they're going (laughs) to, you know, they they went to a conference, you know, long weekend, and now they're going to be able to talk to the demons, you know? And this is very dangerous because, uh, the the world has a lot of gold with people in it. And, um, you know, if you've got a, uh, a 14-year-old with multiple personality disorder, then they really need probably counseling and maybe a timeout. And and then you've got this, you know, character who shows up and goes, "Ah, we'll make this go away in a weekend." You know, uh, your kid just needs an exorcism. That was straightened out. Very dangerous for all parties. Very dangerous. If it's it's dangerous for the individual. I mean, if if the individual is not demonically possessed you know, this is just giving them attention. It's, uh, very damaging. I mean, it, it's okay. The first exorcism doesn't, doesn't work now. what? <laughs> well, let's give another one. You know, I mean, really uh, it, it's kind of like the nuclear bomb of, uh, of the church in a way, an exorcism, at least uh, in, in spiritual practical, spiritual senses. But the other problem with an untrained person trying to diagnose and act upon a case of demonic possession. Well, what if there really is such a thing? What if the individual is possessed? It's going to turn into a disaster. And there's a very prominent team of husband wife psychics. I think they both both passed on by now. And I don't think they were nasty people, but they just were trying to make themselves rich and famous, and they got out of their depth. And uh, there was a husband-and-wife team of of psychics who – got into some exorcism possession cases and there was one in Western New York and my exorcist friend had to go bail them out. I, I don't think the, the child in question was truly possessed. Um, but, uh, <laughs> it was super scary to way the child was is reacting And this husband and wife couple. They were, they were freaked out of their minds and they were fortunate to be within driving range of, uh, my friend, who came to the, uh, the site and managed to, you know, calm things down. But then after that, this couple started talking about this gentleman as though they were his routine investigating partner, and he finally had to tell him to quit using his name. Um, that, that's the way it, it can work. It's just a dangerous subject. I wouldn't personally have anything to do with it.
0: Whoa. what is it, What do they actually do to exercise, you know, the, the potential deal. Well,
1: the, the exorcism is a short prayer. It's, it's really only 120 words. It's, it's, it's not a big, a big deal, but, um, it, it, it has to be applied at the right time in the right place by the right person. And, um, you know, the, the diagnosis is, uh, pretty, it shouldn't be as difficult as it is. I mean, there aren't a couple of... Uh, my, my friend, Father Alphonse, has told me that before you even start suspecting the case of possession, that's outright demonic possession, where some spirit has taken over the body of a living human being. The only time you start thinking about it as a serious possibility is when you have dramatic, a couple of really dramatic... Um, um, events. One of, the, one of the things you look for is that the, the individual you suspect of being possessed has to be giving you information that the person couldn't possibly have. In other words, the spook inside them is talking to you. It's giving you information that you know the individual doesn't have. Another thing they look for is talking in languages that you know the individual doesn't know. Like, you, you know, you've got this 12 year old kid, lying there in bed, and he's talking to you in, like, uh, Latin or, you know, one of the biblical languages, you know, like Latin or Judaic or or Greek. You know, the Bible is really written in, in Greek. It's written in a language. The New Testament, anyway, is written in a, a form of Greek called Aramaic. And if you've got an, a 12-year-old being able to answer questions and converse in languages that you know that they don't know, that's another thing they look for. And finally, they look for dramatic psychic phenomena, utterly dramatic. I mean, impossible stuff like a bed, you know, like a 200-pound bed going straight up in the air, six feet up in the air. And um, neither you nor I would be confused if we saw a case like that. It is utterly dramatic. And cases like that would be exquisitely rare if they exist at all. And my friend, my exorcist friend, believed that uh, demonic possession is, is very, very rare, but that it's allowed to exist by God to show people what would happen. I mean, the real horror of worshiping the devil. And because, you know, it, it's one of the oldest proverbs, in, uh, in at least in the West, that anything heavenly has its hellish counterpart. You know, God puts his soul, incarnates into Jesus, uh, the devil incarnates into whoever it is, the Antichrist or, or whatever it is. But uh, or when the devil, you know, demonic possession is sort of a hellish counterpart to the incarnation of God into the mortal man, Jesus. And that's why God lets it go is because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's ordained that, you know, humanity has to get a little wake up call once in a while. Um, I don't say say this to you, as a person who's deeply religious. I'm not. Yeah. I'm just repeating the the philosophy that I was told for you know, the way this the way this operates.
0: It is pretty terrifying.
1: <laughs> Probably the most terrifying supernatural slash spiritual yeah. experience any of ever possibly have. Sounds like you know these cases that I've I've heard about and uh, read about. Incidentally, my friend uh, Father Alphonsus, he. He believed that the you know the Amityville Horror. You've probably heard about that.
0: Oh yeah,
1: yeah. They're they're pitching that as a possession case, and he didn't. First of all, a lot of the the uh, alleged history about that site just isn't true. You know, they talk about a lot of murders and stuff like that. They just didn't take place. And um, also, um, my my friend just believed that uh, the people who lived in the house were trying to. Uh, you know, they, they they had a movie contract before they out on the table when the investigators came to look at the place. So, in other words, they had just made their deal rather hopefully. But he did not believe the Amityville Horror case was even legitimate. I mean, it might have been a haunted house, but it wasn't you know, wasn't somebody's possessed, you know, child. On the other hand, the the Case in Georgetown, DC, that gave the gave the inspiration for the film The Exorcist. Yeah, seventy three film. Father Francis did believe that that was a legitimate um, case of possession. He said it's very hard to to decide, but he said that one is probably the real deal, and it was very terrifying for everyone. Wow. And and very often the exorcist and his his own team themselves suffers. It is just terrible. A lot of exorcists in these real difficult cases, they don't live much longer than it. Why anyone would want to start appointing themselves, you know, to be an exorcist? I, I think they really don't believe that the stuff exists because if they knew how terrifying it was, <laughs> they wouldn't get near it, you know?
0: Wow. You know, uh, we're past an hour here, so I'll, I'll start to wrap it, but I'll say that... Um you know, I'd love to do a part two sometime when I, next time I come through upstate and I'd love to, to go on one of your tours and to, to have a, a first-hand experience in some of this. It sounds really, really great and it, your knowledge is incredible. It's, it's really cool to talk to you. I'd love to, to follow this up sometime in the future. Um, Anytime. Let's, uh, let's send people to where they can find out some more about you. Is there a website and, and, and a yeah. place to get your books? I'm on
1: Facebook. Mason Linfield is my name. Um, I, I I get a lot of wacky friendship requests, so I may not I may not know what to make of it if yeah. a total stranger wants to be my buddy. But I have a website, masonwinfield.com. dot Not as active on it as I should be, but uh, I'm not that hard to find, you know. Because of the COVID crisis this uh, fall, we're not doing the same schedule yeah. of, of walking tours that we have typically done, but we're still doing a few. I'm doing uh, I'm doing a handful this this month of October in East of New York, where I live. Um, Fridays and Saturday nights. And meeting outside the World Crop Inn and doing a, a tour. And we have a lot of fun.
0: Awesome. And and everyone knows you can go to the show notes for this episode and you can get the direct links. I'll link to everything. Um, all right. So I want to say thank you so much. This is a real treat.
1: Well, my pleasure, Tim.
0: Hey, that is a wrap on episode 188 of the Voyages of Tim Better podcast. This one was really cool for me. You know, I guess anywhere you grow up, you have all sorts of local folklore. I grew up on Long Island and there was all sorts of things, Mary's grave, the devil house, all the weird stuff that happened at the east end of Long Island, like the Manhattan Project, you know all these legends of you know World War II trying to make people invisible, and like they got fused with rocks and mutated, and all these terrible things happened. <laughs> I don't know if they're true. Uh, but they're cool, and they give a place character. When I was traveling through Southeast Asia, folklore is so huge in Malaysia, in Indonesia, uh, where Vietnam, And it was interesting because, you know, people really, really believe it. There was a, I was going through Malaysia and I was going to this orangutan, 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 you know, I guess that's how New Yorker would say it, sanctuary anyway. And we were going past this old abandoned, um, some type of a hospital, I forget exactly what it was, I don't, don't know if it was an old age home. But, and it was massive and they shut down the whole thing because there were like haunted sightings. Now just imagine that, like all this time, energy and money put into a building, a hospital here in the States and because people saw saw ghosts there, you shut it down. Like that's pretty unheard of here, but the belief there is so strong. And I had heard of these old held beliefs in Indonesia in some of the villages, where you, you would actually kill a person to get, you know, almost like a, a a wish granted, like if you if you wanted something specific, you know, I'm probably doing the story no justice at all. Um, but I had heard some of those legends that still sort of kick around in some of the really rural areas. So, just really interesting to me, and uh, it was a real treat to have Mason on here. So. Thank you, Mason. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, as always, Voyagers. And remember to please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you next time. Peace.